Hello and welcome back to a voluntary brain damaged episode of Hollywood Chop Shop. We are your cinema mechanics, Brett Mosier and Travis Santana. Today we'll be reviewing e 2004's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. But before we do, let's go ahead and let's go ahead and check in on the shop. Dude, what's all the racket? Brett, I'm making a birdhouse. Okay, well, hope you're better at construction than you are at aviation. Oh, God. Did uh, Carrie get back to you on the total for the repair on the drone? Oh, yeah. Big old total. As in, completely totaled. She said it'd be cheaper for us just to buy a new one. The best part is, we only got about 10 seconds of usable footage uh, for the commercial before you crashed it. Oh, I didn't crash it. The, the drone crashed. I didn't crash the drone. Well, I mean, you had the remote in your hand, did you not? Technically, yes, but you were out there. It was very windy. You were stoned, were you not? I, I was, but only because I'd been drinking. Uh, pot balances me. It, it brings me up. That's why I smoke if I'm going to be drinking. But the point is... It's scientifically proven, Brett. Just look that up. As fun as I think that would be, I'm just going to go ahead and review Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind instead. Facing the anguish of being literally erased from his ex-girlfriend's mind, Joel Barish makes a knee-jerk decision to undergo the same procedure and have Clementine removed from his memory as well. The only problem? Joel begins to realize he doesn't want to forget everything while experiencing the lucid dreamlike journey through the relationship. After waking up with no memory of Clementine, he meets a familiar stranger on a beach in Montauk, leaving us to wonder if it's possible to fight the inevitability of human connection, and are we doomed to repeat the past? Alrighty, Travis. We're obviously going to get into a a quick diagnostic here, but before we do, let's tease the audience a little bit of our five-point inspection. Our five points of conversation for this week's episode are as follows. Loopy, broken narrative, traversing the eroding memories, age of innocence, and I'm not fine without you. So before we jump into that, Travis, do you want to give us a quick diagnostic before we jump right in? Absolutely. Um, I will say I realized while probably watching the opening credits of this movie, I consider it one of my all-time favorites, but I had not watched it in full since I watched it in 2004. Oh, um, wow. So it's yeah, been I, almost I, 20 years since you've seen this movie. And the weird thing is I thought I had because I've seen a lot of YouTube clips, but I had not watched the actual movie, and, and I'll talk about why I hadn't. In, in the five points of inspection, but the overall diagnostic, I was cripplingly, cripplingly, cripplingly <laughs> disappointed by this film. Really? Um, yeah. No, I'm fucking with you. <laughs> I was just like, holy shit. I'm like, this is going to be an episode where we disagree very, very much because I think it no, is no, no, still I, just, fantastic. I wanted to have that plan to <laughs> throw the curveball early, oh, but no, this still bitch. is as much of a masterpiece as I remember. 
you son of a son of a bitch. Um, well, you really had me there because, oh my God, I was like, I cannot believe you despise me. I, you know, obviously we're not going to be, we're not going to be shy critics here. Uh, nostalgia obviously plays a little bit into some of these reviews. Um, you know, a little background on this. We both worked at the movie theater when this movie came out. So, I mean, this was, I, I'll say a little bit. This. I think this is probably my favorite era of cinema. And I don't know if it's because I got to see so much um, for free working at a movie theater. But I also just think 2000 to 2010 was this perfect like situation for the music and the movie industry where like indie music, like all of the technology that was coming out was making indie music and movies more affordable and easy for the little guy to make with these like amazing scripts. Um, and I also think that maybe, you know, it, it created this, this environment where a lot of new and different ideas were coming out and you didn't have like today where everything is, has to be like a billion dollar franchise where we're seeing nothing but star Wars and Marvels and DC movies. And like, Oh, you know, if it can't make billions, then we're not interested in, in even making the movie. So I think it's just, this is one of my, again, favorite errors of, of just entertainment. I think in general, it's even before like the, you know, the Renaissance of, of TV where like HBO with game of Thrones and stuff like that really started to dominate um, where, you know, big actors, it wasn't, you know, a hit a slap in the face if you went and did a tv show instead of doing a movie but you had huge actors like kate winslet is in this movie and it this is like this is to me the the quintessential decade of indie darlings you know where suddenly like you had these big names like a jim carrey and a kate winslet like caitlin's for fuck's sake is in titanic you know it's one of the, the highest grossing movies of all time and she's in this again the small little indie movie and like again i just I, I cherish movies like this from, you know, 2000. Granted, Semi-Pro is also in this, so there is still some regurgitation <laughs> in that period. I'm not going to say it was a perfect time, but I do really love, and like this is smack dab in the middle of, of that time period, so 2004. Um, so again, just to give kind of a little backstory, I do, I still love this movie. Um, we'll get into it in the five-point inspection, but there's definitely moments like I picked up on things I never picked up on before and even like some of the stuff that hit me differently now, you know, as, as a grown man and all like that, as a father. Um, there's definitely some stuff in this that was interesting. One thing before we get into the, like in terms of just noticing weird stuff that I didn't notice before is like this whole movie is, is a lot about memory and, you know, as he's having his memory erased, there's moments where he kind of tries to revisit memories that have been erased and, and it just... I, to to pull it back to another movie like Leon that we did, where like it's these fine details that just make a movie amazing. Is there's a scene at the beginning of the movie where Joel goes to well, get, Brett, can I can I pause you real quick? Yeah, what you're talking about as far as noticing things you didn't notice when you watched it as a younger man. Does that not tie into Age of Innocence? I, I think it absolutely does. Uh, the point I was gonna make, I thought, was a little bit. Wasn't necessarily necessarily there, but we'll let's just jump into Age of Innocence and then we'll see where we get into it. So, well, give me your point and we'll see if it fits. So, the point I was going to bring up with these little details is at the beginning of the movie, um, Joel is trying to give a gift to Clementine, and it's in a very small box. It's a little necklace, and it's a detail I noticed watching this movie going around. And I don't know if it's because I'm watching it with more of a critical eye than what I normally do, but like, there's a scene later in the movie where he winds up revisiting that memory, but it's already kind of been erased. So he doesn't remember it the way that it actually happened. And in that scene, 
the box, the present he's holding is a giant red box because again, the memories are being erased. So like he's not remembering things the way that they actually occurred and were accurate. And it's like, it's those little details that I think are just absolutely beautiful in this movie. And like I said, it's just something that again, the first time you watch it, I think a lot of people would, would miss that level of detail. Oh, a hundred percent. And count me among those people. Cause there are many things that I picked up on, on just the second rewatch. So to say that this movie is rewatchable, I know that's a cliche, but I feel like you could probably watch this five or six times over the course of a month and pick up something new every time. Mm-hmm. So let's jump into Age of Innocence. I think this, you know, I think this is now a perfect transition into it because, like I said, I didn't think the whole box thing made a whole lot of sense there. But yeah, you're right. Reflecting back as to you know watching the movie again, so Age of Innocence, Travis, this is one of your your points of inspection. So I'd love for you to go ahead and take it, take it. Yeah, and I might vamp a little bit. Uh, because I love this movie, I tried to be a little more detail-oriented with my notes, so I'll try to leave room for you to break in. Um, so, like I said, I saw this movie in 2004, haven't seen it since, but have always read the discourse on it, have always been interested in people's opinions of it. And one thing I hear over and over again is this is a representation of, uh, you know, it's better to have loved and lost than never have loved at all. Mm-hmm. And and I agree with that. Uh, I, I'm, I assume you do as well. Um, yes, absolutely. Okay, I was trying. Well, to... I, I like your hesitation because I think there's a better <laughs> message in this movie. That because I, <laughs> I had Go to make ahead. sure it was actually accurate to what I'm thinking about, like in terms of like you can't escape the past type things. Because again, the whole movie is they try to erase it, and therefore they can't learn from it. So it is a better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all because essentially they erased the lost portion of it and therefore never loved, you know? So I, well, and here's the thing mm-hmm. that segues perfectly into what I wanted to say. I think it could more aptly be described as another popular saying, those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Absolutely. Frickin' lutely. Um, this movie so much. I think it's just, you know, I, I kind of hinted at it in the, my intro there was like, I think this movie teeters so much around the idea of the inevitability of connection, especially with Kirsten Dunst's character and the Dr. Wozniak, I believe is his name. I actually abbreviated his name in my notes. Uh, I know Dr. M is what I so I reduced completely so. fucked that up. But the doctor, like, you know, the, one of the big reveals. Tom Wilkinson. Wilkinson. And one of the big reveals in the movie is essentially Kirsten Dunst's character is infatuated with the doctor she worked with who, you know, we assume pioneered this, you know, memory loss technology. Um, And what it is revealed is that essentially she actually had had an affair with him before and then he coerced her into erasing it from her memory so that they could move on and move past it. And when she realizes that, you know, it creates a, another subplot chain of events of basically her exposing it to everybody that, you know, it's not necessarily fair to have lost these memories and stuff like that. Um, But again, that, and then, you know, both Joel and Clementine meeting back up to me, it's just one of those things. It's like, you're doomed to repeat it, but at the same time, there's inevitability. Like there's a a force that cannot be denied. And I I think another portion of that, and again, we kind of jump around with this because I was going to jump, talk more about this with the I'm not fine without you, which is more about the side characters, but yeah, it's the uh, same here. Yeah. It's to me, a, a great example of that too, is with Patrick, Elijah Wood's character, because 
he essentially has all of these memories and he's try all you know these things that happen between Joel and Clementine and he's trying to basically commandeer that relationship and basically use the notes and their history to try and, and build a relationship off of that and it's unnatural and without knowing it clementine doesn't understand why but she knows that there's something wrong with it because even though he might be doing the same exact things that joel did there's not that actual connection between the two of them so it goes beyond it's not necessarily the actions you take but there is kind of i think a a primal or, or you know a natural force that draws people together and that erasing that from your memory doesn't mean that you're not going to be redrawn back to them, you know? Yeah. And in the same theme of, you know, failing to learn from history, it's also interesting that Elijah Wood's character, Patrick, I mean, you're choosing to model your relationship on one that failed. Mm -hmm. So even as great as Joel was at times, ultimately these two were not right for each other. At least you would interpret that based upon the fact that she's erasing him. So not only is he not learning from his own history, presumably, but he's literally got the history of two people and chooses to repeat the same beats. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I think there's a lot of meat on the bone when it, uh, it concerns character. But the, the other thing I wanted to bring up, I don't know if it fits into Age of Innocence, but I put it in here because I never noticed it on my first viewing. But... There's a lot of collateral damage in erasing someone from your memory because you're not only erasing that, you know, you knew Brett Mosher, but like if I erase you from my memory, I would also have to erase songs and movies and mm -hmm. other things that I love that were independent of another person. Um, the example that jumps to mind is when you realize that Joel as a kid loved Huckleberry Hound. Yeah. And love singing the Clementine song. And at the beginning of the movie, he doesn't know it, which I thought, hey, that's cute on first viewing. But the point is, he knew it. It was a big part of his childhood, but it had to be erased because it involved her. So there are bigger consequences in, in trying to erase someone if that literally existed in, in reality. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Then, yeah, when the doctor makes the comment, like, we need you anything that makes you think of him, like, essentially, you have to erase almost i mean he's looking through you know when he's looking through his journal he's like oh it looks like this is my first entry in two years and that's essentially it's you would have to have erased the entire time period you knew that person because how everything is inter intertwined and all that like there's no way to escape at some point that spurred some kind of extra thought about somebody so basically you're talking about not erasing a person but a period of time out of your life you know yeah and and i will at least wrap my portion of Age of Innocence with a comment, a very meta one. Part of the reason I didn't watch this movie for almost 20 years is because the first time I watched it, it was at such an impactful moment in my life. Um, you know, sorry to get too personal listeners if, if this makes you uncomfortable, but I was going through my first breakup. It was basically inevitable at this point. And I watched this movie alone in a theater, which I was a moron for doing that. <laughs> But it was such a profound experience, I didn't want to revisit it. And it's almost kind of the same thing that is in this movie. You're erasing something because potentially it will bring you pain. But then on the revisit, I was like, no, I interpret this movie completely differently. I have a new appreciation for it. So it was silly for me to keep it on the shelf for so long. Yeah, and it's, you know, looking at Age of Innocence was was a lot about just, you know, reflecting back on, on two very different time periods, you know, um, in 
it's the same way. Like it's it's funny watching it when I did as a teenager and having a, a much deeper appreciation for even the relationship and you know the the ups and downs of relationships and you know not being able to erase. You can't pick and choose, cherry pick. Like I only want to remember the good things, and you know I'm only going to erase the bad stuff. The 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 idea that of erasing something entirely and all that, but you know to kind of wrap up, just being a, in a different space and, and and time and all that. When watching the movie, like one of the scenes that impacted me the most on the second go round, and it is a weird thing. It's because I have a daughter and another one on the way. Is ultimately the scene. It is probably the most emotional scene in the entire movie. And maybe just for me, again, uh, for my own backstory and all that. But like when they're under the comforter, Joel and Clementine are, and she's talking about how she was a child and she had the doll, her ugly doll that she called Clementine, and that she would yell at the doll for it to not be ugly because she felt ugly. And if she could, you know, somehow convert the doll into a beautiful doll, it would convert her. And like, it's a scene like that's when Joel realizes that that's such a beautiful and pure moment that he doesn't want to lose that. Please let me hold on to this moment. Like, and he winds up losing that. And like, to me, all I could think of was reflecting, like, I never want my daughter to feel this way. Like, it is so like a, such a, a crushing moment for someone to feel that way. And again, I think it's just, it's this weird, like shining spot in the entire movie where like, that to me is the most pure scene in the entire movie about just it is pure emotion and then not only Clementine being vulnerable with Joel, but Joel realizing that. And that's that's probably the moment where they they connect the most as characters, you know, where where she actually opens up to him and he realizes that vulnerability and, and they're able to, you know, connect and all that. But um, definitely, much again, that scene, I think, hit me much differently um, as an adult than it did as, you know, a 15 year old. A hundred percent. And as a, you're a father of daughters. So yeah, it's going to hit you differently. There was a, another part that I wanted to ask you about, but I also feel like it works in a discussion of the characters. So do you want to move to a different category? Cause I have a very specific question. Absolutely. Is, are we going to uh, like officially move into, I'm not fine without you, or is this a different category? Well, I think it, Actually, you know what? I think we have to keep it in this category only because obviously Joel and Clementine are our main characters. I want to ask you, do you believe they're a good fit for each other? All right. So this is going to be an interesting podcast. I think it's going to wind up showing a lot more personal side to us and our own kind of philosophies. Um, there's definitely we have categories that are getting into the actual you know, analysis of the movie, which is fine. But I well, here's the thing. So, this fits with Age of Innocence because my opinion has changed between viewings, albeit 20 years apart. So when you originally watched it, did you think that they were not good for each other? Or vice versa? Vice versa. So my thing is, is as a younger, I'm probably going to be on the opposite side of you with this one. Because as a younger person, I probably would like, they're clearly like toxic. They're not meant for each other, d despite the fact that, you know, they want to give it a second go and, and, you know, they seem to be together. Now, as an adult, I just realized all relationships are so incredibly different that the way that their relationship is structured is a very much a a yin and yang um, type yes. type balance where it's like, you know, they, they establish that at the very beginning of the movie with, you know, essentially how the characters are dressed because Joel is very, I mean, as as Clementine would describe, boring, you know, she um. He uh he's in he's very like blacks and grays and, and drab colors, whereas Clementine is in the bright orange, she's got the colored hair and all that. And it's one of those, you know, oh, opposites attract type things. 
I think a large portion of the movie goes back to not being able to learn from the past. And I'm like, in order for those characters to have been able to succeed together, they would have needed to be able to see what exactly the problems were and to work through those. And I think that's a possibility with almost any relationship. And I think what this movie really shows is like, them starting over doesn't mean that it's a it's not a fresh start because they're ultimately who they are. They're still going to carry a lot of the baggage because it is who they are, but now they don't have any of that history to help them get through this inevitable cycle when they're going to hit all of those hardships again. So it's for me, it's not a matter of do they belong together or not belong together. It's one of those where like... Well, I didn't say belong together. Are I they, said, are they good for are, each other? Are they good for each other? I think so. I think because my whole thing is, and I don't know if they stress it enough. To me, Clementine is the spontaneous that's supposed to make like Joel move. And I feel like Joel is the anchor that stops Clementine from flying into the sun. So that's the balance I think they're supposed to give to each other. The movie does not dis- does not establish that, though. And I, I will say that. Yeah. So and I'll keep it brief. At the time I watched this, much like and I wrote this line down. When Clementine literally tells Joel, she says, I'm not a concept. I want you to just keep that in your head. Too many guys think I'm a concept or I complete them or I'm going to make them alive. But I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Mm -hmm. And I think it's natural for a younger person to view women exactly that way or even – Women towards men, women, your partner. Relationships in Let's general. Just say, yes. And so at the time, I thought they were good for each other for that reason. On the second viewing, I thought they were terrible for each other. They said, obviously, hateful things. But what I was impressed with, the movie then presents you with that impossibility. Um, both of them being able to hear their tapes about each other. I had forgotten that that was what ended the movie. Mm-hmm. And that completely turned me back to, no, I think they are good for each other because I noticed at the end of the movie, even though their memories were erased, it seems like they had imprinted on one another. In other words, Kate Winslet took on some of Jim Carrey's characteristics and vice versa. Mm-hmm. It it felt like even though somehow their memories were erased, they were meeting in the middle more at the end of the movie. And that's why still I'm encouraged by them. But I went on a whole last trip watching this movie the second time thinking whether they were good for each other. Yeah. I, I mean, and I think it's definitely one of those things. It's, it's fun to kind of analyze. Cause I think what the movie, I think as much as I do love it, I think what it, it fails to do is it fails to show more of the just, good moments in life to me it's it's almost it shows you the bookends it shows them their worst fights and it shows them at their their best moments and like it gets me because there's a line where he says are we the dining dead and it's like that's what have they become like this routine couple and like to me it's an interesting thing to the concept that like at a certain point where you become comfortable all of a sudden you're the dining dead you know we're just we're in this routine and therefore there's nothing interesting about one another and therefore are we good for each other and it's like i think Ultimately, both of them have a very immature relationship, and I think they're—we never get to see Clementine's, you know, her erasing, but you have to assume she had a very similar experience as Joel, because 
I guess my assumption is that at some point Joel told her to meet her or told her to meet him in Montauk. And that's why they meet at Montauk again. Like there's, there's a natural like draw for them to re-meet at Montauk. Um, but fuck, I have no idea where I was going in that. I just completely lost my train of thought. That's, that was beautiful. You just got to see that live or as listening to the recording. I have no idea where the fuck I was, I was going with other than the fact that they have an immature relationship that, you know, again, I, I think with erasing it doesn't allow it to to grow and blossom. They're now essentially replanting it with some subconscious baggage. You know, now they they know how it's weird because it's almost like a crystal ball because they have the tapes. They almost get to see how it will play out naturally. And it's up to them to decide if they're going to, you know, deviate from that path without actually experiencing uh, I agree. it. And my literally my last point, and then we can move on. Even before they hear the tapes, I don't know if you remember this moment, but they're in the car and Joel describes something as nice. And as we have seen earlier in the movie, nice is a little bit of a trigger for Clementine. Mm -hmm. And she starts to flip out for a second. But then they they work it out in a way that they hadn't the entire movie. Yep. And the point you made earlier, like there's a, a natural connection that can't be avoided to quote Jurassic park. Life finds a way. <laughs> so even though their memories were erased, you said subconscious baggage. I think they're also taking subconscious learning lessons too, mm -hmm. because that occurs before the tape. Yeah. Um, and then the tape kind of comes in to potentially ruin that. But then of course, at the end of the movie, they decide, fuck it. Even if it's going to be bad, the good moments are worth it. Yep, roll the dice. So, yeah, I feel like we we've, we've hit Age of Innocence. Was there anything more about I'm not fine without you that you wanted to tackle? Because I think we kind of dipped into that one a little bit. Well, yeah, and this is more of just a compliment to the movie from a structure standpoint. First of all, it passes our first test, Brad. It's under two hours. It's under two hours. One hour and forty eight minutes. Fantastic. Yep. Um, but. I've seen a lot of movies not similar to this because I mean, the visuals in this are a whole nother level. And I think you're going to touch on those in a bit, mm, but absolutely <laughs> just viewing a relationship between two people. I think a lot of movies make a mistake of the microscope is only on them and we don't get any relief from their situation. This movie does a good job of mixing in side characters. We've already talked about Elijah Wood and uh, Tom Wilkinson as the doctor, course we got mark ruffalo and his subplot with kirsten dunce and then i think my favorite undercover characters in this movie are rob and carrie david cross uh, yeah. david cross <laughs> they're only in probably five to six minutes of the movie but man they're great so it's just good to get away from joel and clementine at times i think the point of those characters is to show that you know the only time you see them is basically when they're bickering, but at a certain point you realize that there has to be love there because they've chosen to stay together. So it's like, you know, that looking at the outside, whereas I almost think you you look at Kirsten Dunst and Mark Ruffalo's characters are almost that innocent where like everything is great. There's nothing bad about what they're doing. They're smoking joints and, you know, a shagging around a dude who's in a coma having his brain wiped. So it's like, it's, they're the, the again, those kind of bookends where like, you're only seeing one side of it, but you know that there's going to be, you know, pieces to those relationships that, you know, ultimately as as they go through that are going to change and, and modify. Um, 
Elijah Wood's character is just kind of the outlier. But again, it, it's showing all these different types of relationships and stuff like that, it, to your point. Well, I wanted to comment with Rob and Carrie. I almost view them, and I don't know if you agree or disagree, they're almost a gender-swapped version of Joel and Clementine. Like, Rob seems a little bit of, you know, a loose cannon. He crashed the plane. He's smoking pot and driving. Uh, he's the one that just says, fuck it, we're going to tell Joel. Whereas Carrie's like the more responsible one. She's trying to cheer Joel up, but keep the mystery, keep the secret, you know. So I just thought it was interesting to, it, like you said, contrast relationships. And, that's and, not something, and you can just kind of see a bit into each one. Yeah, that's not something I picked up in watching it, but it is a very valid point And something that I will definitely, when rewatching this, will pick up on next time is just watching again, how those two kind of interact with one another. Right, right. So yeah, that's that's the, the biggest part I wanted to touch on with the side characters. They're just very important to this movie. You never get bogged down. Mm -hmm. So I think the next thing you kind of hinted at it was just kind of the, the special effects and the cinematography. So that was Traversing the Eroding Memories, I thought was a great title for that section because to me, this whole movie is... is uh, with the exception of, I think, like a falling car, which was CG, everything else is practical effects. And it shows, and it's absolutely beautiful. It stays, you know, we're talking about this movie twenty, almost 20 years after it was made. Um, it holds up because there's no wonky CGI or anything like that. Um, but God almighty, there's some beautiful, beautiful transitions. Like there's the moment where he's talking on at the party and he opens the door and walks through and then he's back in Robin Carey's living room. And I'm just like, oh my God, I beautiful there's times when they're running through the bookstore and like it's almost like a searchlight is on them like almost like they're escaping prison and they're running through it and then he runs through and all of a sudden the next scene is them basically running out into like the ice or a forest i think it's like there's just a lot of the transitions from from in the memory scape i thought were just so well done and like artistic i hate i hate to say that because it sounds kind of pretentious but i mean just again you look at it, it's like it's a it's a very interesting way of of cutting through the movie and and you navigating through it without having to do these hard cuts or anything like that where we're moving from scene to scene naturally but in a very you know unnatural way yeah i uh wrote down several of the scenes that really stuck out to me uh you mentioned a couple but uh and you've got more of an eye and a mind for this so if you know anything as how how it was done feel free to chime in. But I'm also thinking when uh, Joel and Clementine were kids and they're hiding under the table and the use of like oversized furniture. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was brilliant. Yep. Uh, another interesting scene again with the kind of the practical effects with this is the scene in which they're children and um, it's the, she, they're pretending to uh, basically suffocate each other with the pillow and it's them as children, but it's the voices of them as like Joel and Clementine as adults they were actually on, like, that wasn't done as V over in a studio. They actually had basically Jim Carrey and Kate Winslet watch the kids interact because they thought it would be a more intera natural interaction of, like, them commentating as the kids were actually, like, playing. Wow. Um. So, again, there's so much of this movie where, like, just, again, when we talk about the details, like, to, to the point where... You know, making sure everything kind of, kind of works out, and and again, you're talking about the effects, like the oversized furniture and stuff like that. You know, the, very similar to like Lord of the Rings with the Hobbits and what Peter Jackson did with that with practical effects. Like when Joel is a little kid, but he's still you know Jim Carrey. Like 
using camera angles to make Jim Carrey look smaller compared to Kate Winslet rather than trying to use some wonky CGI to, you know, to fit them into the scene together. So, um, and it shows because it, the movie feels, it ages so much better um, when, when you do stuff like that. Yeah. And there were many scenes where I just, I couldn't figure out how they did it. It was so brilliant. Um, Like the, uh, the, the time where Joel is, driving his car and following Clementine and then he gets out of the car and then no matter which direction he walks on the street, it just leads back to the car. Mm -hmm. Like, don't, I don't know how that was done, but it seemed seamless to me. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's, yeah, it's just, it is, it is a fun movie, even again, from a visual standpoint to watch. And what I really do love about this movie is, you know, I think it's a, a perfect with the, the title traversing the eroding memories. Like, this is an actual like sci-fi movie. I think a lot of people, when they think Eternal Sunshine, they think of I won't say rom-com, but like more of a romantic movie, maybe dark comedy. Some people would classify it as that. But at the end of the day, when it truly is a it's a sci-fi movie and like traditional sci-fi, not like when people say sci-fi and they think Star Wars because it's in space, but like it's using science fiction that the technology of eroding somebody's memories or targeting them and getting rid of them, like that's that's a very science fiction concept or something like that. And I think. This is a very what I think what this movie does wonderfully is that with all of the effects they do and like how they essentially navigate the audience through what's happening, they make a very kind of complex subject matter very digestible for a com you know for anybody in the audience to to be able to understand it even to the point where like they use Clementine's hair, which I will say I am a little disappointed with what they did with her hair because I really like when I rewatched it, I thought I was like, oh my God, this must be a, a, a thing that I missed the first time because they mentioned her hair and like the colors of the hair is red menace, blue ruin, green uh, revolution, yellow fever. I'm like, oh my God, this is going to be a thing where every time her hair color changes, like it's going to like the color of her hair is going to define what's happening in the scene. So like, you know, her thing was she made up agent orange or something like that so i'm like oh agent orange is when she's truly being herself and like you know to me like when she was blue ruin it was like oh this is post the um post her having her memory erased like she's kind of ruined she doesn't necessarily know why but like she's in a, a ruined space i'm like okay it's it's still working and then she has the red hair and she's red menace and i'm like okay i guess she's kind of menacing or not she's a menace to the to the operators because at this point like this is the point in the movie where every time they're trying to locate uh joel because he keeps jumping off of the path that they're trying to delete this is oh she's kind of a menace to them because they keep having to find her and this is when she's getting the red hair um and i think at one point she has green hair at the very like when he realizes when he meets her the first time he's engaged to naomi he winds up breaking up with her and that's green revolution right because it's she's it's a revolution in the way he was thinking and settling he's now gone with something more complex with clementine i'm like it's one of those things I feel like I'm I'm trying to shoehorn it and make it work, whereas I wish it had just organically been that. Really, the reason I think they did the colored hair was it was just to help the audience understand the time periods in which things were happening. So, oh, this was the blue hair period. You know, this is post-erasing uh, of the memory. Green hair, you know, that was at the beginning of the relationship. Red was towards the center, you know, um, and then orange was towards the end of, you know, the breakup. Like, it was just a, a, a very good cue so the audience knew like as you know because this movie is a is a broken narrative um but as they're doing that it was just a great way for the audience to to very easily be able to understand where we are in the story to to reassemble the narrative if you wanted to do it you know um what is it uh in a, in a straight line um i can't remember what the word is but yeah so 
But again, at the end of the day, it's just fantastic sci-fi. Linear. Linear. Thank you. See, you complete me, Travis. <laughs> no, I I see what you're saying, and, and I think it, it functions mostly as a way to help the audience for oh, time absolutely. periods. But, yeah. <laughs> but at the same time, and we haven't talked about either, Charlie Kaufman, the writer of this movie, and – Michelle Gondry, the director, I just feel like it's a perfect pairing. Mm-hmm. We we complain about movies not being intentional enough. I think there is very little about this movie that's not. Yep, I would agree. So it is a very clean script. And again, it, it's, it goes all back around to like the the creators, I feel like, had complete control. And again, this goes back to the whole idea of these these indie darlings, where I don't think the studio knew how to control them or like necessarily understood it to where it's like when you had these indie movies it was just kind of like no let the indie people do what they want to do and you you know your assumption is that you know theaters are doing very well that it would bring in money um because this wasn't really like this didn't have a wide release like you know um but yeah so we have two more i would like to end with loopy because i think that's a perfect way to end the the five five point inspection um so broken narrative was I just wanted to to kind of there were two points I wanted to to kind of make with this and a what's interesting about this movie is apparently in doing a little bit of research the script for this movie was actually being floated around a little bit before around the same time as Christopher Nolan's Memento which was also very much about a broken narrative and like memory and stuff like that and apparently they were terrified that they weren't going to be able to get the movie made or that you know basically Memento was going to overshadow it because of what was going on. Uh, even though I believe this movie came out, I think four years after Memento, because I think Memento was in two thousand, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I was thinking two thousand or two thousand one. Yeah, Memento was two thousand. So what's interesting is this movie was, you know, and I don't know if they refined the script after, but the the script for this was actually being you know shot around around the same time as that, and it, it took until two thousand four for at least to be released. Because again, we know movies get made and then shelved until the studios decide that this is a good time to release it, but. Um, what I really loved getting back to the you know the original thing, the broken narrative. The other part of this movie is very much a mystery, and I think they do a fantastic job, even though it is a broken narrative. Basically, the movie starts out, and I love the way the movie starts because the movie starts with you and the main character knowing exactly the same amount of information. You are essentially waking up with Joel knowing just as much of what has happened, and essentially, you as the audience are learning everything that is going on right that happened to Joel until it gets us back to the point in the beginning of the movie again where Joel is waking up and now all of a sudden we know what has happened but now we're watching Joel essentially relive it again for the first time you know and you know when he's meeting Clementine we know what is happening and what's going on we now understand why Elijah Wood's character was so weird at the beginning of the movie and we have a new perspective that we didn't have um to to again the mystery as to what's happening because even the beginning of the movie how it's shot with you know, the guys in the van, like, that's him, that's him, that's him. And you're thinking, like, oh, is he going to be kidnapped? What's going on here? When he notices the letter, you know, at the, the first time we see the letter, Joel knows what the letter is. And it's basically saying, like, hey, Joel's having Clementine erased from his memory. Don't bring her up again. We don't find out what's in that letter until much later in the movie. And I just think the broken narrative actually works very well in establishing the mystery and continuing to take the audience through that mystery. Um, again, hand-holding them to where you never get lost but at the same time, as the revelations are happening, everything feels earned, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think you said it best. It, it's a very complex movie 
that is made very digestible. So it will meet you at your level of engagement. So I, I, that's a big compliment for a movie. And like you said, the first time go through the movie, it's, it's a mystery. It's a hundred percent of mystery. You're figuring out what led them to this moment. So the second watch is just appreciating what you already know. So again, I, I think you could watch this movie several times in a short span of time and really appreciate a different thing every time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just, again, it it just goes back to, you know, and cause I'd have to go back and I watched Memento. Honestly, it was probably around the same time as eternal sunshine. It might've been a year or two before just by virtue of it coming out sooner. I don't remember enjoying Memento nearly as much as I enjoy eternal sunshine. And I don't know if that was just, it was the first time I watched a movie with a broken narrative, or I don't know if it just didn't do it as well, where like you're as the audience, you're confused and you're like, what the hell is going on? You know, as opposed to eternal sunshine. I know that Memento had the tattoos and all that stuff, but eternal sunshine, I think with Clementine's hair, it's just, it's a very, very, like it's a neon sign telling you where you are in, in, you know, in terms of the narrative of the story. So, um, I just think it is, it's definitely done better in eternal sunshine. Yeah, my I like Memento fine enough, but I think the key distinguishing factor between the two is if you put Memento in chronological order, it's a pretty mad movie. Whereas Eternal Sunshine, I don't think the gimmick makes it more interesting, but if you remove the gimmick, I would still be compelled by the characters and their interactions and what's mm-hmm. happening. And in terms of gimmick, I thought this was a funny little, again, doing research tidbit that apparently when like doing the direction, um, all of the characters were a, or all all the characters, all the actors were encouraged to do improv, like to try and improvise some of the scenes to make it feel a bit more natural with the exception of Jim Carrey and the justification. It wasn't because they thought Jim Carrey was like either couldn't do it or because he would take it too far because he is an improv comedian. It was because the role of Joel was supposed to be straight laced by the book, kind of boring on a track and they wanted it to stay that way. So they did not want Jim Carrey deviating off of that track because they wanted to make sure Joel as a character remained the same as, as was written on, on the, on the paper, which I thought was an interesting, you know, direction. Yeah, no, I I think it's a brilliant direction. I mean, they can say what they want about worrying that, They weren't worried that he would take it too far, but it eliminates that possibility. And this is by far my favorite dramatic Jim Carrey role, and I think that has a lot to do with it. Because even though he's kind of in a straitjacket the whole movie, he still releases that manic energy, but it's in a different way. It's like a socially awkward, I just don't know how to exist in the world. I mean, he calls it out. He'll never fall in love with a woman, or at least one won't fall in love with him. Because he can't make eye contact with a woman he doesn't know. So he's able to manifest that energy, but in a different way. Mm-hmm. Did you know originally they were trying to cast Nicolas Cage for the role of Joel? Totally different movie. Uh, that makes sense. I was think this it was, before or after adaptation? I think uh, after, right? I think it would have been after. And if they had already worked with him, I think it was the same director did adaptation. Or director or writer did adaptation. Writer. Yeah, yeah, Charlie Kaufman. Um, but uh, I think it would have been a completely different movie if if it had been Nicolas Cage, just the, the way he delivers lines. Like, there was something away about the way Jim Carrey was able to deliver the lines just as kind of a sad depression. Granted, he was going through that at that time in his life, but the other fun tidbit is, apparently the director would also, like, Jim Carrey would get angry because the director would give each actor different direction. So he would take Jim Carrey off to the side and tell him, hey, this is a very, like, emotional, like, very, you know, um, 
what is it, very serious movie. You need to play it that way. And then he would go and talk to Kate Winslet, and he would say, this is a comedy. Play this up like a comedy. And again, it would it, it helps so much with just, again, the juxtaposition of those two characters because Joel is so serious and Clementine is such a free spirit. And it, it shows that they were essentially told to approach the movie in completely different ways. And yet it's still comp- it works beautifully on screen. Yeah, I mean, something that sounds a little bit unnatural then leads to the most natural performances. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's a brilliant tactic. So I think we'll touch on our last five point piece of five point inspection then jump into some choppy chop um but loopy i think we both were very interested in this well this was one of ours that we wound up having the same the same five point inspection so we knew we were going to talk about this one the ending of the movie ends with the same scene of joel and clementine running on the snow-covered beach of montauk playing around and then as they're running down the beach it hard cuts back to the beginning of it and then hard cuts back i think a third time before it pan or it it um goes straight white so the question is do they wind up getting back together i think is the the question you had with the with loop am i right well i think it's pretty clear that they're going to get back together my question was more are they going to be able to learn lessons and make this more successful the second time around so i will tell you i did a little bit of research um I'll tell you what my initial thoughts were before I read anything about this movie. Um, my thought was the ending was basically again to show, like we talked about at the beginning, like you're anybody, you're doomed to repeat the past if you can't learn from it. So essentially, Joel and Clementine are, are you know, the Joker and Batman. They're doomed to to do this dance over and over and over again because there is a natural connection to them, but they're unable to learn from those. So they'll always be drawn back to one another only to push each other away again. And I don't know if that's, you know, even if you take out the the idea of wiping your memory or anything, I think that's just, I think that is the dynamic of those characters is until they're able to completely open up, they'll always, there's always going to be the potential of them pushing each other away but they're always going to wind up back together. And again, was that a, a good relationship, toxic? Who's to know? At what point will they actually grow? But I think to me, a lot of the ending was that they're, you know, they're they are essentially stuck on a loop until they're able to get themselves off of it. Yeah, I, I, it's easy to read it that way. So, how do you feel after you said you've read more into the movie and maybe you feel differently? No, I feel very much uh, pretty same. So the original manuscript or the original of the, of the thing had the movie a little bit different. The movie opened up with an old woman writing a manuscript or like a book, a tell all book. Um, and it winds up being Mary. Um, and she's older and she's basically telling the story of the, the business and everything they've done with wiping people's memory. At a certain point, uh, Clementine comes in and you realize that Clementine has had Jolie erased from her memory 15 times over the course of like 50 years. Like she's constantly erasing Joel and then winds up back with him. And I think it's still like, I think the, the ending we got was kind of an artsy kind of like nod to that. So I, I kind of agree he was still trying to go with that approach um, without being necessarily as, as heavy handed. Cause I think if you add a whole thing with, the movie starting 50 years in the advance or in the future and then coming back, I think that starts to add too much time. And it, instead of the story being nice and condensed, suddenly there's a, a lot more time periods and narratives that you have to deal with. But originally 
the movie was going to start 50 years in the future and you would realize you would come to find out that Clementine basically gets tired, hates Joel to the point where she has to get rid of him and then winds up getting back with him over and over and over again. And it goes back again to this theme of every time you erase him, you're starting back over and you're not learning from the past. So you're again, doomed to continue repeating it because I think there is, you know, the natural draw um, connection between the two of them. Yeah, I hate that. I'm glad they did not go with that, you know, Mary writing a memoir 50 years in the future. That really would have lowered the quality for me. I agree. Yeah, I'm Um, glad it got cleaned up because, yeah, I think that would have been a little too much. Yeah, that would have felt a little too reminiscent for me. (laughs) Hold it for the wrap up. Um, Hold it for the wrap up. Okay, you're right. You're right. (laughs) Um. But yeah, I already touched on my feelings earlier, so I'll just be brief. I think, I don't know the science of it, but again, I saw subtle changes in their behavior, which showed me that they were learning from the past. And then they literally, and this is the part that could never be replicated in a real life relationship. So as much as you could apply to, hey, apply this logic, you're never going to have audio tapes of people talking poorly about you before they erased you so that you can have a track record of why your relationship failed. But in this movie, in this universe, I I choose to believe that they'll figure it out. Uh, They'll listen to those tapes and they'll not fall into the same pitfalls. So the difference between this movie, first viewing to second viewing, albeit, you know, 16 years apart, I'm much more encouraged by the ending mm -hmm. on this viewing. Well, and I think another piece of evidence to support your claim that they did subconsciously learn something is the whole point of joel and even at the beginning of the movie is him talking about how you know he's not a courageous person or anything like that you know he's he's not going to be outgoing he's not like clementine you know he's he's very you know reserved and all that and at the end of the movie after clementine's leaving after hearing the tape yes he's the one who comes around the corner and says no stop wait he pursued her he didn't just let her leave and i think again that goes to show that like he is growing outside of what his character is and the Again, they do kind of bring a balance to each other. Or, you know, they, again, that whole yin and yang type thing where if they can continue to learn to grow off of each other and be open, they can make it. If not, they are doomed to, again, just continue that spiral of, you know, hating each other and then getting back together, which I think, you know, there's so many relationships out there that you hear about where it's like, why do you guys keep getting back together? And I think this movie kind of touches on that a little bit. Like there's just, again, there's a, a natural connection. And the problem is that people are just choosing not to learn from one another and, and grow. Yeah. I mean, you, you perfectly said it there because my favorite scene of the movie is the beach house scene where she basically says, come back and let's just make up a goodbye. I do love that scene. Yeah. And all of that happened because Joel was afraid. He was afraid to take any sort of risk. He was uncomfortable about being in that house. So he just had to get out of there. Mm -hmm. And like you said, He's presented with a similar scenario. She's fleeing, and he has the courage to go after her. Um, so, yeah, I, those subtle changes for me. And even her, her choice to run away from it shows growth for me, you know, for her. Mm-hmm. You know, she sees, hey, this is toxic. Uh, there's a natural attraction. This is a red flag, though, so I'm walking away. I feel like that was her being more responsible than she normally would have been. So that's what I was talking about with that transference. So that's why I think it can work out. Mm-hmm. I agree. Alrighty, sir. Are you ready 
for some Chop Shop. was until you told me that you did a lot of extra work on yours you son of a bitch an extra 10 minutes all right just to fill it out a little bit you know it's still i feel like it's still a little loose a little loosey-goosey i think it's a cool concept probably gonna need you to to kind of help take it over the finish line um i don't know who you want to start we did the the random drawing post show last week i got blockbuster for this you got comedy i believe that is correct so how do you want to start this off well, it sounds like you have the main attraction, so I'm going to knock my brief one out. Okay. So I got comedy, um, and in Brett Mosher tradition, I've sprinkled a few elements of some different movies in here. So my thoughts are Wedding Crashers meets Due Date with a little splash of Analyze This. Okay, I'm liking where this is going. Let's get a good swirl. So much in my tradition, I didn't really remake the movie. I took and made what would happen after this movie ends. And I mentioned it before. I love the couple of Carrie and Rob. So they're actually going to be our leads for this movie. Oh, okay. And I feel like we don't know much about them other than that they are bickering and they seem a little bit opposite personality wise. But what we do know is we see Rob building a birdhouse at one point and it's later discussed how he cro- he crashed a remote control airplane. So these two things seem very bizarre and it makes me wonder if Rob is the type of person and I'm sure you've known him, Brett, where they have a different hobby or a different profession like every six months to a year. Mm hmm. Yep. They get they're bored constantly easily. changing yep. what their passion is. Yep. So I'm imagining that Rob's that type of person. And as an extension, Carrie has to be at least somewhat okay with that. Um, and I'm thinking about the, their different approaches to um, handling Joel being upset about Clementine and trying to call her. Cause uh, I love the line from Rob you're right. It's not about us. It's about Joel. Who's an adult. Okay. Not mama Carrie's kid. (laughs) So I was thinking after Mary steals all these tapes, we see what Joel and Clementine go through. That's a moment of reckoning where they have to figure out what they're going to do. Presumably there are thousands, if not more people who are going to be impacted by Mary going public with these tapes. So in my chop shop, Carrie and Rob decide to become what I like to call enlightenment advisors so they're basically going to travel around the country arranging meetings with people to deliver the tapes of whatever they chose to forget and then offer a sort of counsel sort of a good cop bad cop rob's going to be the one that's just like just fucking get over it move on with your life carrie's going to be a little more sensitive try to work around the edges and make things better so the part of wedding um, crashes you're taking is the fact that they're divorce attorneys. That whole scene where they're they're t- yes <laughs> okay 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 I like okay I'm just making sure where I know where you're coming from with this. Yeah. So we see in the movie a brief snippet when Joel shows up. We see a woman there with like a dog bowl 
like she, it looks like she's trying to forget a pet. The lady from the movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. I, I mean, in Internal Sunshine. So the movie sort of establishes that people get rid of their memories for all sorts of reasons. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there's a woman calling in trying to get basically another first date erased, and Christian Kirsten Dunst is like, "Hey, this is would be your third time this month. We can't do it." <laughs> Needs that punch so, card. <laughs> trying to make this into a pure comedy, I wanted to try to think about some of the crazy scenarios that Rob and Carrie could get into talking to people and what they chose to spend this money to wipe from their memory. Um, and like I said, I kept it light. So basically, that's my premise. And I wanted to throw it to you. Are there any absurd things that you think would work for comedy that people would be trying to forget? I would love what if like there was somebody that like like especially if we're making it today, like there's some weird person who like did a bunch of escape rooms and wants to like forget how to do the escape rooms and David Cross is just like, What you spent money to forget that? Like couldn't you just do another escape room? Or something? like like just absolutely like obscure, stupid things or like somebody hid something and made themselves like in a scavenger hunt. And like, I just want to forget where the end is. Like, what do you mean you want to forget where the end is? I'm like, yeah, I, I, I just, I wanted to find it myself. And like, just really like stupid stuff like that. Um, I feel like I'm thinking, hmm? what about this? This just popped in my head. You could have somebody who saw the end of game of Thrones and was so disgusted that they wanted to race, <laughs> but then they're erasing it to watch it again. And David Cross can just be like, I'm telling you, the ending, there's a reason you erased it. Just stop at season six. Shit like that. Oh, I like that. I like that a lot. I also want them, they have to like visit like maybe like a, a mental institution or something like that. And then they have to talk to somebody who tried to forget that they forgot. So like they, <laughs> like somehow they wound up like really like fucking up their brain. Like the person's perfectly sane, but they just kind of have like a weird tick. And every once in a while, like, like they'll just kind of like freeze and then come back. And it's just like, just this really awkward thing. He's like, he forgot, he, they forget that they forgot. It's like, yeah, they wanted to reverse it. So they tried to go in and forget that they did the forgetting. And it's like, just some kind of weird paradox thing. Yeah, and it becomes that weird thing at Inception where you could get trapped in the dream forever or something. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I, I think this is a fun idea. I think you could come up with a bunch of, of like weird, weird, wacky things. Like, yeah, and I don't necessarily think it would be a weighty comedy. Like, all the deep elements would probably be lost. But mm-hmm. the concept of memory and what people choose to forget, I think it's ripe for comedic, uh, you know, vignettes. You can have a couple that somebody paid, basically didn't tell their significant other what the the that the appointment they were going for, and basically made them forget like fights that they had like lost, so that it seemed like they were always right. Like they just erased, like they cherry picked fights that they had with their spouse and had them forget the ones where that they lost and like didn't tell the person. So like there's that generation like, wait a second, what did you make me forget? <laughs> Or you, know, my last one. You could have like a uh, a guy who thinks he's a lot more handy around the house than he actually is, and he actually just makes his wife forget all the projects that he fucks up, so that she continues to allow him to try to do those projects. <laughs> but yeah, that's my kind of high level overview, just to whet the appetite for the main event, which is your chop shop. I, I like that. I. Uh... I think, like I said, I think there's a bunch of really fun ideas 
in that one. So I got Blockbuster. So I went with a little bit of a, a Scott Pilgrim versus the world slash big fish kind of mentality. And my idea behind this is I like the idea of the Scott Pilgrim versus the world. We're having to fight the was it the five ex girlfriends or five ex boyfriends or something like that. And then the big right. fish ex uh, kind of pieces. Like, I love the idea of big fish kind of the like through big fish the kid always or you know the the main character felt his dad always made up these outrageous stories and like and then at the end when everybody comes to the funeral you know he kind of realizes that maybe there was there was a, a little bit of truth in all of those stories like they weren't all these weird crazy fabrications but there actually might have been you know they, they were all based in a certain level of reality right that's kind of like where my uh, my idea was going through with this so we uh we'll start with you know Ultimately, I, th- I think the movie starts very similar to the way it did um, with with them erasing the memory. Though, really, it's it's kind of the center of the movie when they're actually in the dreamscape is is where I really deviated and wanted to, to tear up the movie. So, we start the conversation where you know uh, she says that she that they should basically try and hide her somewhere else in another memory so that she can't escape and all that. So, he uh, he decides to take her to a time where his dad is and like maybe we find out the dad died killed him i i don't know how heavy we want to go again it's blockbuster maybe the dad just walked out i don't know but the dad is going to wind up having been a vietnam vet um and it's going to go back to joel being a little boy playing with some dinosaurs as his father is kind of recounting war stories while at the same time there's like a a war movie going on on the tv and all of a sudden, basically an explosion is going to go off and like all the walls of the house are going to fly off. And suddenly Joel is in the middle of like Vietnam. Right. So, again, a lot of these where I like I love the transitions and the dreamscape. I wanted to keep a lot of that alive. So he's there. You're seeing helicopters flying over. There's some kind of mist or dust pouring out behind them. Suddenly Clementine appears out of the bushes. She, she's almost like a like a apocalypse now, like she's a rogue agent or something like that. And she's Agent Orange, and her hair is bright orange. All right. So when I talked a little bit where I was disappointed where they didn't do anything with the hair, I went full hair on this one. All right. So she's Agent Orange. She's attempting to strangle Joel. All right. And this is the point where he, you know, he's trying to fight her off, uh, and then it kind of reminds him of how suffocating she could be. And all of a sudden, you're starting to hear the echo from some of the tapes about him recounting about how suffocating she can be and just kind of how she walks into the air into a room and can just suck the air out of the room and leave him feeling lifeless right as he's fighting this version of clementine and trying to get off all of a sudden a dinosaur bursts out of of the of the jungle and basically gets agent orange off of him and it's basically this idea of like all of these memories because they are being erased at the same time the movie implies that basically it's almost like a void, like digging a hole. Like if you burn out the memory, there's just kind of a gap there. And my thing is like those gaps are going to be filled in by whatever is near it or surrounding it. So like the dinosaurs that Joel was playing with while his dad was talking about Vietnam are suddenly now there on the battlefield and stuff like this, where all of a sudden like these weird juxtapositions where memories are starting to merge together because he's not remembering it quite correctly because the, his brain is trying to essentially fill in the holes and the gaps that are being created by the machine. So dinosaur bursts in, busts out, uh, winds up saving him. And he looks up and there is another Clementine who is, uh, you know, riding a dinosaur, you know, uh, like a, like a horse. So uh, she emerges out, grabs Joel. They ride into the jungle, right? He's got to get out of there. 
uh, away from Agent Orange. So Joel and Clementine are seen around a campfire. Joel's describing another time that he loved with her. We're talking about, you know, the frozen Charles when they're when they're sitting there. And all of a sudden, the scene, everything goes completely black. The you know, wind blows, the fire's gone, goes completely black, and all of a sudden, kind of lights pop back on, and he's sitting in the middle of the frozen river. Clementine is gone, and all he can do is hear screaming and shouting, Don't let go, don't let go. Right. So Joel rushes to where he's hearing the voice, and all he finds is a man and a woman in horseback, clad in armor with like a crossbow and axes and like swords and stuff like that. It's a couple of witch hunters who just so happen to be Robin Carey. Maybe a little bit Wizard of Oz is being tied into this too, because you know people from his again people from his his past and his memory are kind of being merged into these things. So Robin Carey, there they tell him that there is a witch in these frozen woods. That has to be that has brought disease to a local village. So they embark to, to to the village where Joel visits all the you know the villagers and all that. And he, he sees a picture that he had painted of Clementine. It's bringing it back to memory of Clementine with the skeleton body. This time though, she has yellow hair because she's now yellow fever. All right, and it is a wanted poster by the townspeople. So he's talking to the townspeople. He realizes this is basically it's a lot of the people he met at the party when he first met Clementine. And they start describing the witch as a home wrecker who was once welcomed in the village until she began enchanting men of the group and taking them away. So as punishment, they cast her out and cursed her from the village. So Joel is basically forced to reconcile at this point. We this actually got deleted from the movie, but there is, I guess, a moment where he does something with Naomi, but you know, I'm bringing a little bit of that back. And Joel has to reconcile with the fact that he did leave Naomi kind of on, you know, the line just kind of upped and left um, to, to be with Clementine. So he has kind of confront that he was kind of a shitty person for, for what he did to Naomi. Um, and then he, uh, he goes to, to see the witch yellow fever, at which point he's realizing some of Clementine's insecurity. So this is where we kind of bring in the whole blanket scene about was she an ugly doll and all that. So Joel winds up realizing that she's not this, you know, hated witch, this monstrous creature in the woods, fights back the witch hunters. And as they're running through a door in the hut that the witch lives, all of a sudden Joel finds himself alone again in a tuxedo in what appears to be walking into a high stakes poker game. And as Joel sits down at the table, he realizes that Clementine is sitting across from him as none other than the red menace. So the two, the two exchange barbs, this is where basically they're, they're talking about everything that they hate about each other, right? You know, just constantly attacking one another uh, for their insecurities. And Joel realizes that, you know, if, if he's, he has to go all in and if he's going, has any hopes of, of beating this version of Clementine, the Red Menace, who claims to be holding the greatest memory he has of Clementine hostage, right? So the cards are dealt. Joel has a losing hand. He doesn't know what he's going to do. We're playing Texas Hold'em. The first card flips out. He's still got nothing. Second card comes out. There's hope. The third card is flipped over, and it's the Queen of Hearts. And the Queen is resuming Clementine, not a traditional queen. So it's like Clementine in her orange hoodie and all that. And he, he beats the Red Menace. So having lost, the Red Menace is not going to just give it over, right? This is the Red Menace, for God's sake. She attempts to kill Joel, but Joel shoots her first. Being a secret agent, he pulls out his pistol, shoots her, and he runs over because it's still a version of Clementine. And as she's dying, she reminds Joel that he cannot hold on to the best memories. It's just the best memories or the ones where he was right and that uh, essentially Clementine was a villain. So as she's fading away, Joel looks down into a puddle, right? And he's seeing a reflection of himself 
and he remembers the last time that he saw Clementine, and as you know, after he uh, after she's erased him, right, and she's she's got the blue hair, blue ruin, right, and all of a sudden a grotesque arm darts out of the puddle, a monstrous Joel beast climbs out of the water, you know, kind of horror esque, and Joel is overcome with guilt and realizes at this point that he is just as much to blame for all the couple's problems and that a lot of it is him trying to project all of his insecurities and problems onto Clementine, right? So Joel is forced to face the memories that, that in, at this point it leads out to an all out war in his subconscious. And all of a sudden, all the evil Clems are back along with the dinosaurs, the soldiers, the witch hunters, all the different things that we've seen. And we have a, a, an epic battle of, you know, proportions, almost like a ready player one where like, it's just a hodgepodge of weird shit going on until all of a sudden upon the hill, Almost like Gandalf the White is Green Revolution, another Clementine, who rides down with the support and helps Joel overcome his past. But as she fades from memory, because again, he's still having all of this erased, she tells him to meet her in Montauk, where it all began. She tells him to remember her voice, echoing as it fades into black, and Joel wakes up. Basically, this is kind of, again, where the movie just takes place back where it was, where they will meet back up at Montauk, realize who they are. But like I said, I went big budget, blockbuster, action, craziness into the center of the movie while we're in the dreamscape because there was a lot of, I felt like a lot of uh, free sandbox that I could play in there. But that's essentially how I, I modified this movie into a blockbuster. No, that's... Uh... You implied that you might need some help getting across the finish line, but uh, I thought that was pretty gangbusters. Um, but yeah, so I, I I thought that was kind of a, a fun approach to it. Um, I feel like I did something very similar to this with another um, Chop Shop. Maybe not. Maybe I'm remembering remembering that incorrectly. You know, I'm just having uh, such a problem with my me memory. Vibes of King of Staten Island. Okay. Okay. But I oh, mean, that's yes, that was how it. creative yeah. you're able to make it. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so that was my chop shop. Um, if you don't have anything else, I think we can move into some of our final segments. Yeah. The only thing I wanted to say. Okay. Blue book. I it was is. low key hoping to get horror. <laughs> oh, yeah. That's my chop shop. Are you going to low key because... give me your horror script right now? No, 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 I'm not. I'm not. I just thought there were plenty of shots that lended themselves to horror. Mm -hmm. And then listening to you talk about what you did with there being multiple Clementines with a horror movie, I think it would be interesting to have Joel encounter other versions of himself, like other mm -hmm. versions or there moments where he fucked something up and it's a particular side of him that he doesn't like. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I think a horror chop shop could also work really well for this. Yeah, I agree. So you got like a psychological oh, yeah, move on to a, a new segment. If you are. All right. So let's go ahead and we'll jump into blue book real quick. That's an easy, easy transition. So with this one, you know, the budget for this, the market value, this estimated budget was about $20 million is what this movie cost. I'm going to ask you, Travis, what do you think this movie brought in? U.S. slash Canada and what you thought it brought in worldwide. So we'll go with U.S. first. How much money do you think this movie's brought in? Excuse me, via the say box office. Thirty-eight million. Damn close, sir. Damn close. Thirty-four. We'll say thirty-four point five mil is what it brought in with U.S. and Canada. So I guess 
what is it we came up with last week? We found it, is it double or triple it has to make for it to be triple you know, is to, profitable tri- usually. Triple is profitable. All right. So that's our US. If we want to go gross worldwide, full total, what do you think the movie made? Do you think it was in the green or do you think it failed? I'm going to say it slightly failed. I'll say total worldwide, 52 million. 52 million? I think you will be pleasant to know it actually succeeded. It was a it was a profitable movie. It made $74 million worldwide. Okay, excellent. And yeah, I don't even think the marketing budget would have been that pricey compared to some of these bigger tent poles. So mm-hmm. yeah, I think that's a raging success. Yep. Alrighty. So next we'll go into tag and title and then cat time capsule, which I'm going to openly admit right now. Last week I was, I was a piece of shit to you, Travis, and I, <laughs> I forgot to do time capsule and I apologize. So this week I, I assured you I would not forget to do time capsule. So tag and title. It's our favorite little segment. I'm going to give you three taglines, Travis. One is from Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. One is from a movie I find adjacent to this. And one is one that I created myself. What I need you to do is I need you to tell me what the tagline for Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind is. Are you ready to hear the three taglines? Most definitely. Your first tagline is, Some memories are best forgotten. Your second tagline is, I already forget how I used to feel about you. And your third tagline is, the heart never forgets. Um, the heart never forgets is from another movie because I think that's a very subpar tagline. You would not have created it. Um, so that's I'm going to lock that answer in there. Am I right on that one? Well, actually, I guess I have to, I guess all three. Hold on. Mm -hmm. Um, Give me the first one again. Some memories are best forgotten. I think you made that one up. Okay. And your last one. And so you think already forgot how much I used to feel about you is eternal sunshine. Yeah. I'm going to guess that's an alternate tagline because you would have known that I would get the primary one. So that's because it's also a deviation on one of our five point inspections. So that is an alternate timeline or alternate one that it's actually the one IMDb shows as the main one. Some memories are best forgotten is actually from Memento and the heart never forgets is mine. I'm not insulted. The problem is eternal sunshine had one. I couldn't get past. That was so fucking good. My, I shouldn't have looked up the, the alternate taglines. So my favorite one, and I couldn't give it to you because it's, it's one of those that has, spring in it but it's this spring clear your mind and i was like fuck that's a good tagline and i couldn't get past oh. it so uh i kind of did myself dirty that one because then i just I, I i spiraled around i'm like this is and this one has a, a lot of taglines there's also our memories make us who we are you can't change the past would you erase me i'm fine without you do i know you this one's super long you can erase someone from your mind. Getting them out of your heart is another story. So I kind of went derivative from that and then replace my memory. So this one actually had some decent ones. And like I said, the this spring clear your mind. I was like, fuck, that is a that that's a 
solid tagline. Yeah, that I think that might be the the best one, even better than I'm fine without you. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, it was definitely this one of my worst weeks. But sometimes, like I just I couldn't get past something that was already fantastic. So I wasn't even the point of trying, you know. Uh, that's how I felt with my chop shop, and then you blew me out of the water. <laughs> so, with that said, uh, we'll go ahead and wrap it up. Uh, how do you feel about? Oh, 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 wait! I, I almost <laughs> I almost forgot. <laughs> <laughs> so time capsule travis take us into time capsule i mean are you sure you want to hear it brett i'm i'm sure i want to hear it i might want to have it removed from my memory later but at this moment i want to know your time capsule so i went very brief because i again i love this movie you love this movie i thought there was going to be a lot to digest so i just wanted to touch on mark ruffalo the Buffalo time capsule is a little bit different this week. I just want to focus on his 2004. Um, he did four movies in 2004. Of course, eternal sunshine as Stan. Um, he did a movie called we don't live here anymore. He's an adulterous college professor. It's a professor. It's a, a relationship drama, but then he also did 13 going on 30. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was Matt. He was the love interest of Jennifer Garner, who, you know, he's been pining for her since they were 13. And then he did one more movie in 2004. Do you happen to know what it is? Um, it's not the one with Reese Witherspoon, is it? That was a little bit later. That was a little bit later. That's because that was he was starting to do his rom-com period around this time. Yeah, uh, I do not. What was it? He did a little film by Michael Mann called Collateral. Oh, shit. Who was he in Collateral? He was the detective that's looking for Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx and has the theory about what's going on that ends up being correct. Oh, wow. Okay. And spoilers, he gets fucking killed by Tom Cruise unexpectedly <laughs> in the middle of the movie. He just doesn't realize that Tom Cruise does that for a living. <laughs> but I was just impressed with the range of movies. I mean, you have something like collateral, which is like a, I mean, it's a Michael Mann crime drama action. I mean, Mm. Michael Mann is in the hall of fame for me. He's in, he nails the rom-com and 13 going on 30. And then he does the serious sci-fi drama in eternal sunshine. Uh, I haven't seen, we don't live here anymore, but that looks to be like a relationship drama. So as an actor, Mark Ruffalo's 2004 is up there. Yeah, especially to have four movies come out in a year, um, which again leads me to believe that this Eternal Sunshine must have been produced and then set on a shelf. Because I can't imagine yeah, that, I would assume. that Ruffalo the Buffalo was was able to do that many <laughs> movies in a year. I mean, he's actually got a lot of, like, Zodiac? I don't know if you ever saw that. I loved him in Zodiac. Yes, yes. Um, yeah, no, he's, and now he's just the Hulk. Everybody knows him as the Hulk. Yeah, which kind of goes to your point, which... 2004 was just a different era of cinema. Like now Mark Ruffalo will play the Hulk in 37 different properties. Whereas in 2004, he was four completely different people in a year. So it is kind of sad to see that era be gone, but yeah, I'm just, uh, and and one last side note before we wrap it up, Mm -hmm. uh, I won't state my job, but uh, a person I work with had the pleasure of speaking with Mark Ruffalo on the phone. Oh yeah. Super nice guy. That's good to hear. Yeah. So really good to hear. But so, yeah, let's wrap this puppy up. Wrap it up. I mean, 
Um, I don't think it go it goes without saying. We'll go and say it anyway, though. Uh, I think we both love this movie. I unfortunately don't own it because I only had it on DVD and I just purged my DVD collection not too long ago. Um, because I was like, ah, I'm gonna be a snob and only keep Blu-rays. So uh, I will be repurchasing this and, and adding it to my Blu-ray collection. I think it is a absolutely fantastic movie. I hope that I don't go 16 years before watching it again. Um, because uh, it is just it is a fantastic movie. It's it's a movie. If someone were to look at my thing, my my all of my DVDs and say I've never seen Eternal Sunshine, it'd be like, well, go ahead and sit down because that's the movie we're watching right now. I don't care what you're in the mood for. This is a movie we're about to sit down and watch. Yeah, I'm, I'm in lockstep with you down to the fact that I don't own it because I only owned it on DVD and got rid of it. Um, so, yeah, I'll be looking for the Blu-ray um, this weekend. And again, I think it's rewarding no matter what lens you view it through. If you're a younger person, you're a little bit naive on life. There's a lot there for you. If you've lived a lot of life and you're older, you'll see things maybe someone younger wouldn't see. So very few movies have something for everyone this one does nearly a perfect movie for me yep and if you're looking to 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 check it out i think i watched it i rented it from amazon i know it's floating around i think a couple of their streaming services but i was able to rent it for amazon yeah, for like showtime it's on showtime yeah. anytime so there we have it if you haven't seen it go out and watch it if you haven't seen it in a while go out and watch it and if you've seen it in the last month i'm gonna go ahead and say go ahead and watch it honestly so um with that, we hope to see you for the third installment of the Mind Trilogy, Arnold Schwarzenegger's Total Recall. The plane crashed, Brad. I didn't crash the plane. Did you notice in that scene, too, that, like, he was making Carrie carry all the, uh, like, the heavy shit because he had to carry his airplane to the beach? Like, again, it just goes into how shitty of a character Rob probably actually is as a human being. <laughs> Can you stop making yeah, all that I... noise? What? I I'm building a birdhouse, Brett. <laughs> Give it a rest. 